Welcome to Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast, where we serve up a smorgasbord of fascinating people, groundbreaking ideas, and noteworthy advancements in fields as diverse as mobility, healthcare, engineering, and technology. The sequencing lab initially couldn't find anything again, but they had just signed up and started using Mastermind, and they did a search for the variant in Mastermind, and it returned a single paper that talked about another patient halfway around the world that had the same variant, and they ended up diagnosing the disease for that variant, and it turned out to be a protein deficiency where if you have that disease, the standard of care for seizures will actually exacerbate the seizures. You instead have to give them this other supplemental treatment to treat the seizures. And so they were able to do that for the youngest son and treat his seizures, and they were able to get them under control. Hi, I'm Tim Troop Noonan, and that was Kettering graduate Steve Schwartz a serial entrepreneur and founder and CTO of Genomenon, which provides technology to dramatically reduce the time that pathologists and geneticists must spend to research and interpret millions of scientific articles on genes, variants, and diseases. This means that, thanks to Genomenon, patients with cancer and other rare genetic diseases have a far greater chance of quickly getting an accurate diagnosis and appropriate treatment for their condition than was ever possible before. Steve Schwartz, CTO and founder of Genomenon, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I want to talk with you about Genomenon because you are a serial entrepreneur and, and you've done a great deal of things in the past, but this latest venture, which you've been doing for how many years now? About seven years, I think. Okay, so it is some maturity to this company is a very exciting operation in terms of making the diagnosis and analysis of disease, sometimes obscure diseases, which would not be otherwise uh, discoverable or findable for a physician, much easier. That's a simplification, obviously. So I know it's there's an underlying software called Mastermind. So tell me a little bit, elaborate on that, about what Genomenon is, the nature of the company, what it's doing, the implications, because I think it's fascinating. So Genomenon is genome interpretation software for diagnosing and treating cancer and rare disease in children. So we, we have software that makes the analysis of inheritable or genetic disease and cancer easier so that it can be used by clinical labs to make diagnoses and, and figure out treatment plans, as well as by pharma companies to develop precision medicine therapies for these diseases. Well, now you say pediatric and cancer, but is that solely your uh, purview at this point? It seems to me that it's also scalable. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's really for cancer and inheritable disease. A lot of inheritable disease tends to affect affect children early on with a few of the diseases being later onset diseases such as, you know, things like Alzheimer's and, and diseases like that. And so we usually describe it as, you know, inheritable disease for children. But in reality, it's widely applicable to any sort of genetic disease, whether it's cancer or, you know, some kind of inheritable disease. Now, tell me who are, it's not just family physicians or even specialists that use this. What other professionals 
use Genomenon's information. It's actually kind of rare that treating physicians, so a doctor that you might see at the doctor's office or in the hospital, would be using our software. More often than not, those doctors aren't experts in genomics or genetics. They're not geneticists. Usually it's up to them to recognize that there might be a reason to sequence your genome to help in the diagnosis of whatever it is that ails you. And what they would typically do is send that to a genomic sequencing lab. And those labs are the ones who then take your tissue sample that was collected by the physician and sequence it and then also analyze what comes out of the sequence. So they would then, they employ the molecular diagnosticians or the genomicists or clinical diagnosticians. They have a lot of different names, but they're essentially MD-PhDs that work at these sequencing labs that would look through your sequencing information, look a lot of stuff up in various sources online, and then use that information to figure out if they can identify, find and identify the genetic cause of the disease that you might have, which means they're also most of the time determining what the disease actually is that you have based on that genetic cause. And then they put that into a report that might include targeted therapies or drugs that are on the market that might be able to treat it, or they might look for clinical trials that you could enroll in based on the the genetic biomarkers that you have for that disease. And then they would send that information in a report back to the physician, and then the physician would be the person who would look at the report, explain it to you, and talk about your options. So getting down to the actual lab level, if I'm a geneticist or a pathologist or diagnostician, and I have access to Genomenon, how does what I do, is it different than somebody who doesn't access? How do I use that? What step do I take to improve my diagnosis using Genomenon? Yeah, great question. So before we were on the scene, this was the problem that my co-founder, Dr. Mark Keel from uh, the University of Michigan, had in both his clinical and research work. So if you imagine what that job looks like without us, it's a lot of what my co-founder used to refer to as genome spelunking. So what that means is you would start with the mutation or variant that the patient had, or you would actually start with a list of variants that the patient has, and you would go through them one by one, looking each one up in a lot of different sources online. There's different mutational databases you would do searches on PubMed, you might do searches on Google Scholar, you might just use Google and search for those variants and see if anyone's posted anything online about them. You would end up going to anywhere from 10 to 30 different sources to look up one variant. And then if you can't find anything, then you move to the next one in the list. And depending on what kind of sequencing was done, whether it was targeted or what's becoming more uh, ubiquitous is whole exome or whole genome sequencing. You might have a list of dozens of variants that you need to do this for, for a given case. And so that process could take hours or even a day or something like that per patient. And so one of the issues was not being able to find that information quickly and efficiently. So there are a lot of websites that will pull those structured sources together into a single interface. The largest problem or or the real bioinformatic bottleneck that they would then have is finding evidence variant in peer-reviewed published literature. So when you're in the clinical space, 
the gold standard is what has been studied, peer-reviewed, and published. That tends to be where you need to make your treatment decisions is based upon the evidence, that the primary evidence that's in the medical literature. And so while there were a lot of different websites that would pull together all these structured sort uh, databases, there was no easy way to search all of the medical literature for this variant. You could use something like Google or Google Scholar, but for one variant, there's over a hundred different ways that an author could describe that variant in a paper. And you would have to know what all those ways are to do a full search. And so what we created is called Mastermind. You put in a variant and it finds all of the evidence regardless of how you typed it into the search or how the author described it. It sounds incredibly labor-intensive, time-consuming, and it seems to me you almost impossible to be effective. I mean, a lot would escape. You can't, couldn't find some stuff. And it would tie up the lab. I mean, there's only so many patients that you could do that for if you have a limited number of diagnosticians who have to use a day each per patient, perhaps. Right? Oh, absolutely. And that was contributing to the backlog that these labs would have. So the technology is advanced such that you can have your genome fully sequenced in a day. And it costs about $1,000 to get a clinical sequencing. So we're not talking about you know consumer grade, what's actually called genotyping. It's not full sequencing that places like 23andMe and Ancestry.com do. For clinical sequencing, you can get it done in a day. It costs about $1,000, but there would be a three-month backlog. It would take three months to get the report back because it would then, after they sequenced it, the data would go into a queue just waiting for one of their diagnosticians or curators to pull your case out and do that analysis. So now I'm a clinician, diagnostician with access to Genomenon. What's my alternative? What can I now do instead of that long, laborious process? So there's a couple of options. We have a user interface. We also have an API. And then we have a separate product called Prodigy Genomic Landscapes that we provide to pharma companies. So essentially, the way I describe those three products is the user interface, the the web application that we have allows you to ask a question and it answers it. The API allows you to automate the asking of questions and aggregating of answers. And then the Prodigy landscapes that we provide for pharma is actually where we ask all the questions and aggregate all the answers and put it into a report for the the pharma companies. And so those are the three options that we provide. I'm assuming that if I have something I'm trying to understand what took hours and hours is reduced as these things tend to be to a fraction of that time. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. So what used to take hours, you can now do in, you know, 10 minutes, you know, depending on the case, it depends on how many variants you have and, and what you have. But yes, we could take what took hours and bring it down to minutes, essentially. And it's much more successful in isolating and finding and isolating the information that has been discussed and published in peer-reviewed journals, correct? Oh, absolutely. So, 
you know, when you're looking at a patient, again, it's it really depends on the disease that you're looking at and the variance that the patient has. If you have a variant, you know, that's really well studied, for example, uh, something that that may contribute to or cause breast cancer in the BRCA1 or BRCA2 genes, those are really well known. They've been well studied for like a couple decades now. There's a lot of information about them. So if you look those up, you might have a variant that's been cited in 8,000 papers. So for those, it's really difficult maybe to figure out which papers you need to be looking at or citing in your report. And so we do a lot of work, not just in identifying variants in papers, but in analyzing the content and prioritizing those papers so that the, the most important ones are at the top of the list. But the value proposition is even more critical for rare variants because you can have a variant that's only ever been published once. So there's over 30 million peer-reviewed published articles in PubMed. So PubMed is, is sort of medicine in general. If you narrow that down to anything related to genomics, inheritable disease, or cancer, we're probably talking closer to 9 to 10 million studies. And they get published at a rate, new studies are published at a rate of about three to 5,000 new papers a week just that have anything to do with genomics, inheritable disease, or cancer. So just for subcategories of medical papers, three to 5,000 new papers a week, it becomes impossible to keep up with. And so when you're talking about one variant that out of millions of papers, you know, 10 million papers has only ever been cited in a single study ever, and then you think back to what I said earlier about the fact that one variant may be described in over a hundred different ways by an author, it becomes really important to find that one paper, but nearly impossible to find it if the author used some nomenclature that you're not thinking of when you do your search. And so that's the part that, that our product Mastermind solves. Mastermind is that search engine and API. So that's what that solves and, and makes easy. And we had a case early on I was going to ask you, let me let me jump in. And this is Horsepower to Hyperloops. We're talking to Steve Schwartz, CTO and founder of Genomenon. We've been talking about this in the, from the clinical stage. Do you have a patient-oriented example of, a, of that utilized this? Yeah. So early on, we had a clinical sequencing lab that was using Mastermind. This was actually in the early years. And they came to us after a few months of using it with a, a case study where they said they had a family that had two sons who were about, I think, a year or two apart. The oldest was around four or five, I think. And he had started having seizures randomly and they didn't know why. And so they took him to the hospital. The hospital could not figure out what was causing the seizures. And so the physician had him sequenced and the sequencing lab sequences genome, they did the analysis, they couldn't find anything, which often happens. They, they look at your variants, there's nothing that they can find in any of the databases or that's been studied or published to be linked to any of these conditions or any diseases that you know have the same effects that they're seeing in the patient. And so they couldn't find anything. So they gave the child the standard of care for seizures, you know, standard treatment for trying to treat seizures, and his seizures actually got worse, and eventually one of them was so bad that he didn't make it, he passed away. 
which is traumatizing, you know, absolutely. I can't overstate, you know, obviously how traumatizing that would be for a family and how tragic that is. And then fast forward a couple years later and the younger son started having seizures. And I really can't imagine, you know, I've, I've got two young daughters myself. I, I can't imagine going through something like that. And so the, again, they went back to the hospital they had the younger son's genome sequenced and analyzed again. You know, it's two years later, hoping that maybe something has been published in the meantime. The sequencing lab initially couldn't find anything again, but they had just signed up and started using Mastermind. And they did a search for the variant in Mastermind, and it returned a single paper that talked about another patient halfway around the world that had the same variant, and they ended up diagnosing the disease for that variant. And it turned out to be a protein deficiency where if you have that disease, the standard of care for seizures will actually exacerbate the seizures. You instead have to give them this other supplemental treatment to treat the seizures. And so they were able to do that for the youngest son and treat his seizures, and they uh, were able to get them under control. And he survived. Yeah. So faster, more accurate diagnosis of genetic diseases that will at the best case scenario, save lives that would otherwise be lost due to undiagnosed diseases and lack of treatment, and also free up lab space and allow more people to be diagnosed more accurately, correct? That's absolutely right. And I'm glad I was able to get through that story. This Every time I tell that story, it gets a little easier. Usually I get kind of choked up just thinking about it. Any parent would, you know, the idea of losing a child and then in a way, saving the second child, which is impossibly wonderful, but it underscores, I'm sure, the idea that they could have saved the first child if they just had the information, you know, which is is hard to hard to swallow. Take me back seven years. You're a serial entrepreneur, and we, we may have a chance to talk about some of your other ventures. I know you're consulting to startups with some software in, in a company you found called Alpha Django, and that may be part of the story. Tell me a little bit how you got into what became Genomenon, how you started Mastermind, and where it all began seven years ago or earlier, if that was the case. I would say, you know... One thing that might be interesting for this audience in particular would be going back to college. My days at Kettering, I started there right like a couple years after they changed the name from General Motors Institute to Kettering University. So I went there for mechanical and electrical engineering. While I was there, I started a company selling used car parts online. I was a broke college student, so I didn't have money to pay anyone to build the website, so I learned how to build it with the help of one of my friends who was my neighbor in the dorms who was there for computer science. So I, of course, walked over to his room and asked him, hey, how do you build a website? And he kind of rolled his eyes and said, okay, this is a rabbit hole, but I'll, I'll point you in, in the direction and you can go there if you want. And so I learned how to build the website. I ended up really enjoying it. Once I launched the website, I had more people coming to me asking me to build them similar websites than I had people on the website buying anything. And so at that point, I decided to, you know, start building websites for people. And so I ended up getting really into to software development at the time. I ended up, the more I built them, the more I moved away from just websites and more into complex applications, software applications that happened to be accessible on the web. 
I really like the fact that unlike mechanical and electrical engineering, I really enjoyed those as, as subjects. But to do anything with them, there's such a high barrier to entry. If you're, you know, let's say in class one day and you have an idea for a product, you can go back to your room, you can bring up, you know, a CAD program, you can design it in CAD. While you're at the university, you also have millions of dollars of lab equipment at your disposal. So you might actually be able to prototype something up too. And this was also in the days before, you know, consumer 3D printing. But it just, it occurred to me that to execute on any idea was such a high barrier of entry. You had to design it, you had to prototype something up, you had to test it, redesign it and you know, that that part could take months or years and then you had to figure out manufacturing and distribution and I loved how easy it was to have an idea for a software product build it on your computer and then make it available to the entire world instantly you know via the internet and so that was one of the things that really attracted me to software development while I was studying mechanical and electrical engineering and so I ended up getting more and more into software development as I continued my mechanical electrical engineering degrees. I helped start Kettering Entrepreneur Society and met a lot of like-minded students who were trying to build their own companies. And, you know, we were discussing and helping each other out. And so I ended up, the idea where I would help people build websites moved more and more toward helping people build startups. And so that's where Alpha Django came from. Alpha Django is essentially a CTO and development team for hire for early stage startups, right? Absolutely. As I was helping other people building startups, I was also building my own startup. And so I built two or three startups that never really took off. Well, two startups, I guess, that never really took off. And then my third startup was called Car Code. And that's the one that, that really took off for me. And then I once that got acquired, I had started talking to Again, my co-founder, Dr. Mark Keel from the University of Michigan, I'd started talking to him about his idea. And so when my current startup at the time got acquired, I basically, you know, flew out to Santa Monica, signed the acquisition paperwork with my co-founders. And then the next morning uh, I called up Mark and said, hey, do you want to turn this idea into a company? And he said, yeah, let's do it. And that's how Genomenon started seven years ago. And what was his, well, Car Code, just to finish that story, yeah. was a platform that allowed buyers to talk to car dealerships on a very lean basis without a lot of sales and just get facts. Is that basically right? Exactly. The idea started with, again, one of my co-founder at the time, his name was Nick Gorton. I had started talking to him and actually another friend of mine who, who was another software developer uh, named Proboda Wibadi. So the three of us got to talking about this idea that Nick had, and it came from a survey that he had found that was put out by Edmunds.com, where they asked car buyers, what's your preferred method of talking to car dealerships? Is it in person, on the phone, or via text message? And a third of respondents said text message. But then he noticed car dealership websites gave you no way of, of texting them. And so that's sort of where that idea came from was um, we had actually worked on a previous software together, um, a previous version of the software that didn't focus as much on text messaging. And so we already knew each other. We were already building stuff. And then he had this idea for an evolution of that product to focus on text messaging from that survey. And so we built in this product to allow car dealerships to text message 
customers to, from their website. So a customer would pull up the website on their phone. There would be a button that says click to text and they would click it and it would just launch their text message program and they could text a question. And then we had the software on the dealership side to manage all of those incoming texts, assign them to salespeople, keep them assigned to the same salesperson. So you could have a long text message conversation over the course of weeks if you wanted, and then, you know, track all of that information. And you sold that to Edmonds. Yeah, and then the story of car code comes full circle because we ended up being acquired coincidentally by Edmonds.com, who were the ones who had put out that survey that gave us the idea for it in the first place, you know, a year before that. So then you fly back to Michigan and meet with your partner. And what was the germ of his idea at that point? And give me his name again. So his name was uh, is Dr. Mark Keel. Uh -huh. And I had actually been talking with him through Alpha Django because while we were building car coding and I had a team of people at Alpha Django that, you know, are, they're amazing. They, they're able to meet with the founders, help talk them, you know, use the processes that we've established over the years on how to build a startup. And they would talk founders through their ideas, put forth potential issues and work through uh, uh, those problems and find solutions and then build the product for them. And so I had already been working with Mark through Alpha Django. He had this idea while he was doing his fellowship at, at the University of Michigan in the genomics program. And he had run across these issues that I had described earlier, the things like genome spelunking and how much work it was to analyze variants for uh, pathogenicity and evidence. And so he had first asked around the University of Michigan and the tech transfer office, hey, I have an idea. What do I do? I think he, he actually first approached the IT department of the University of Michigan and they, you know, listened to his idea and they said, eh, that's not really what we do here. You're going to need to look outside the university to help you with this. And you're probably going to need funding because this is a big idea. And so then he started talking to investors. And the, I think the first investor he talked to said, hey, you should talk to Steve. He has a company called Alpha Django. This is what he does. Is he, he helps people like you figure out how to build these things. And so he then met with me and we hit it off immediately. And so I was doing car code at the time, but we started helping him through the idea at Alpha Django. We actually initially gave him some feedback and some mock-ups that made the idea look real. And he used those in some pitch competitions and ended up winning several pitch competitions. And so then he came back with the winnings and said, hey, can we start to build a, a minimum viable product for this? And so then I started helping advise him through how to do that. But that's the stage at which CarCode then got acquired. So then, you know, I got my startup got acquired and I literally called them the next day and said, hey, let's turn this into a company. Very cool. Now, Alpha Django, just as an aside, still exists, still has a team of people, and you still consult through them when you're not doing Genomenon, right? Yeah, that's right. So Alpha Django is still there, still doing what it does. Alpha Django has been around for about 14 years now. I have an amazing team there, like I said, that's, that is able to take these processes and work with founders to help them through their idea. If you think of a software startup as sort of a, a hybrid company, you know, half web and software, half whatever it is that startup does, whatever industry that startup is in, Alpha Django brings that web and software and the startup expertise and helps the founder who has identified this problem in this other industry figure out how to solve it, you know, using software and building a startup around it. And so, yeah, it's an amazing team that is still able to do that while I 
continue working on on Genomenon. And then, you know, I'll occasionally advise founders as well. You and Dr. Keel were this started Genomenon. I assume just the two of you with some funding initially. How big is it now? And and what's the footprint bio, um, geographically, structurally, personnel-wise, whatever? Yeah, so I think now we're around 35 full-time employees. We've actually been hiring a lot lately, so it's a little bit tough for me to keep up. I think we're about 35 full-time employees. We are primarily in the U.S. Our headquarters is Ann Arbor, Michigan, but we have a very remote workforce. I think more than half of our workforce is spread across the United States. And they are what kind of people? They are researchers or they are... Uh, former lab people, uh, what's their skill set? I'm sure there's a lot of different ones, but the ones doing the... Yeah, outside of the normal company stuff, like, you know, administrative and sales right. and, and marketing and, and the kinds of things you need for every company, the bulk of our workforce is split between the software development team, which I run as the, the CTO, and the data science team, which my co-founder runs as the chief science officer. And so it's a lot of software development and a lot of genomics and data science and, and that sort of thing. So how do you scale? Are you going to scale outside of genetic diseases? Are you going to scale beyond pediatrics? Uh, what's the future? Where are you going to be in three, five years? Yeah, there is. We do have a plan to start scaling beyond that. But really, most of our scale, I think, especially in the next three years, continues to happen within genomics. Just within genomics, looking at cancer and rare disease is such a large problem to help solve. So, you know, rare disease, it's called rare disease because each disease affects fewer than 200,000 people worldwide but it is a very long tail. There are a lot of rare diseases, and when you add them over together, it's actually a significant portion of the, the worldwide population that suffers from some kind of rare genetic disease. And especially as the field of genomics moves forward, we've often said as a, as a company that, you know, before Genomenon, genomics was made possible and then it was made plausible. So it was made possible by the Human Genome Project, which you know took 20 years and, and cost, I think it was $3 billion to complete. That made the promise of genetic medicine or precision medicine possible. Then it was made plausible by the advances in technology of doing the sequencing. It used to be really expensive and time-consuming to sequence a single human genome. Now it takes a day and costs $1,000 or less, actually even less now. I've been saying $1,000 for so long, it's, it's now much less than that. We see ourselves as making it practical. So possible, plausible, and now with our solutions, we aim to make it practical. So we want to take the process of doing the analysis of genomics and bring the amount of time and effort involved way down because if we can do that, not only do we speed up the process for you know the existing patients who are being sequenced and, and getting diagnoses and treatments and things like that from their genetic sequence, but you can also expand the scope of when it makes sense to do uh, genetic sequencing. For example, if you're diagnosed with some sort of disease that has a, a late stage prognosis, let's say you know only 
a few months to live, they might not even bother doing genetic sequencing because they know it's going to take at least a few months just to get anything back from it that you can act on. And so if we can bring that backlog, that bottleneck down, we can actually expand the areas where you know genetic diagnosis and treatment is used. Eventually, it might end up being a, you know, a universal thing. You might just, when a baby is born, you get their genome sequence to make sure that they don't have any genetic diseases that are going to significantly impact their quality of life within the first few years. And if they do, you can identify that right away and know exactly what the treatment plan is going to be. Wouldn't that maybe have some concerning insurance implications that you know, if you identify something early on that maybe you don't have, but you have a predilection for that, you're going to have a hard time getting insurance? Absolutely. I mean, there's, there are a lot of, of both, you know, legal and ethical concerns that would happen with newborn, you know, universal newborn screening. So I don't think that we're talking about that happening, you know, within the next few years, we would certainly need to have a very, well thought out, I think, legal and insurance structure in place. So a lot of the ideas that I've seen discussed around the possibilities of implementing these kinds of screenings are things like making sure that you accurately scope down what it is you're actually testing for. So what you don't want to do is test for later onset genetic markers. So you don't want to test for things like Alzheimer's or, you know, testicular or breast cancer or things like that that don't tend to develop until later on in life, you would only typically want to sequence, you know, maybe for, and I'm not saying this as fact, but I'm saying, you know, these are the types of ideas that I've heard discussed are only sequencing for diseases that affect children within the first few years of life, only test for diseases that have known therapies because you don't necessarily want to say, hey, they might develop this disease and there's nothing you can do about it. All you're going to end up doing is worsening someone's quality of life with no benefit. So making sure that you accurately scope down what you're testing for, making sure that privacy is ensured of the testing data and that it's not shared, you know, maybe outside of the lab or the hospital doing the testing. There's a lot of concerns there. And, you know, these are things that the industry talks about a lot. You know, my co-founder and I have been talking about these things since we started the company as well. So new issues always create or new solutions always create new issues. So, I mean, that's, that happens everywhere, but Steve, you know, when parents have children, they say, well, maybe he or she will grow up to cure cancer. And you grew up to uh, identify and help other professionals cure cancer. And I can't imagine the magnitude of the contribution to healthcare that you have made and are making with Genomenon. And I I thank you so much for talking with us today. And uh, uh, I wish you the best of luck with the company. I'm glad it's going well and and, uh, look forward to watching your future there. And, And gosh knows all your other ventures. Thank you very much. I, you know, I'm very fortunate I think in the people that I've I've been able to meet and how I've been able to end up here, you know, going from mechanical and electrical engineering to developing a website for people to buy car parts to building an application for, you know, automotive dealerships to text people to genomics. It's been a, an amazing ride and I'm I'm very fortunate to have I think have ended up here. Well, Steve Schwartz, thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you for sharing Genomenon with us. And best of luck, and thank you for joining us on Horsepower to Hyperloops.
Thank you, Tim. Thank you very much. Join us again to hear Kettering University's podcast, Horsepower to Hyperloops, available from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.